think we successfully disproved the basic explanation of what Britannia thinks Canadian literature is. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Keep It Fictional. I'm here with my book friends, Gabriel, Mark, Virginia, and Corrine, and I am your host, Fiona. Today, we will be talking about I Read Canadian Day, which is a national initiative to create awareness of Canadian books and celebrate the richness, diversity, and breadth of Canadian literature. Now, to prepare for this episode, I started a Britannia entry on Canadian literature. First, it said that Canlit can be divided into two major groups by our two national languages, English and French. Then it talked about how the first Canlit was travel diaries from visitors, and how even still today, the big question Canlit wants to ask is, where is here? Well, this might be the way that we used to think of Canlit, but I call BS. You can keep your Margaret Atwood and your Robertson Davies and your Alistair MacLeod and Alice Monroe in the picture, for sure. But we would be completely remiss to not acknowledge that what is great about Canadian literature is just the sheer diversity of it. The fact that this little article didn't acknowledge Indigenous literature, the stories of immigrants from all over the world, is just absolutely flooring to me. So I am hoping today that we can take a tour of the contemporary view of Canadian literature, which I personally, as we all know, think is pretty great. So we are going to start things off with Gabriel. Gabriel, what have you got today? Well, I chose a book that came out in April of this year. I decided to read Len and Cub. A Queer History by Meredith J. Batt and Dusty Green. By the way, this is a nonfiction book. I should probably specify that before I get in because it'll sound like a pretty dry story if we were thinking about this in terms of an actual fictional narrative. But Leonard Keith and Joseph Coates were two boys who grew up just outside of Moncton in New Brunswick in the early 20th century. And the place they grew up, it's a very small town. It's surrounded by farmland. Perfect for the two boys to, you know, go and explore, go on camping trips, lots of drinking, and doing kind of whatever else they wanted. So their families knew each other in the same way that all families in a small town kind of know each other. And both belong to lineages that had sort of been settlers long before Leonard Cub were actually born. So they had been in the area for quite a while. They were also from well-off families, especially Len. And this was right around the time that it was getting easier to get your hands on a camera. So Len's family purchased one, and he very quickly started to experiment with it. That's kind of what this book is a little bit about. It's about some of the historical collections that we have available to us now in 
the uh, Provincial Archives of New Brunswick. But specifically, it's something that is unique because we don't have, especially when it comes to a maritime or Atlantic context, we actually don't have many photos of visibly queer couples who are older than Lennon Coates. These, this was one of the first times. And so the book kind of goes into the information that we have available on the different photos. And it's interesting because, as I mentioned, Len purchases a camera and immediately starts sort of taking pictures with it, experimenting with it. And it's something that stays with him through his whole life. So we have, we actually have quite a collection of just all the different changes that he goes through, as well as the different historical periods, which is really interesting to see because you don't, it's already sometimes difficult to see sort of rural communities depicted by people who actually live in the rural communities. So it's interesting because it's a it's a different side of, I think, at least for me, Canadian history that I really go to when I'm thinking about the big moments in Canadian history. And Len in particular was not only interested in composition, he was interested in keeping a record of the people and the places that he he was around and, and the people that he cared about. And of course, there was nobody more prominent in the photos than Joseph. That's that's Cub's name. And as the title sort of it's not spoilers. <laughs> I wouldn't say there's spoilers in a historical nonfiction book, but it is a queer history. So he was known as Cub kind of because of his dark eyebrows and sort of like his heavy set brow. So he's a very he's a very notable figure in them. And we have a lot of photos of them, as I mentioned, hunting, canoeing, drinking, skating, and holding each other, which is, e- even if it wasn't something that we were able to confirm based on the like the research that went into this particular collection that they kind of talk about in the book, it's something that shows, I guess, male intimacy in a way that we aren't usually accustomed to seeing at that time period. And so I thought that was really interesting to see kind of the relationship develop and also have this background of like the pool halls, the garages, all of the different sort of beats of that at least small town like maritime culture and the place that they frequented. And so that was really cool to see. A lot of the book is It'll sort of show you the photos and then it'll talk about what uh, the context around them is, both in terms of the place, the time, and also in terms of the information that we have sort of from elsewhere. And when the donor initially brought these photos, according to the record in the book, he told uh, the archives that Lenin Cub were boyfriends and that unfortunately the story doesn't end super well for them because of the well the rampant homophobia at the time but it is really i think it's really powerful to be able to see stories about people that you normally wouldn't especially in i think smaller communities the idea that people have always been there i think is very it's very meaningful and it's something that i've really appreciated being able to kind of look at and I guess understand the context of how they would have come about. So I'd say it's actually just even outside of, I guess, the specific interest of this particular area of 
Canadian history. It's actually just a good introduction in general to queer social history. It made sure that you were grounded in what the world looked like and even the differences between rural and urban communities, uh, the social expectations for different genders, the dynamics of gay relationships at the time, and what was an acceptable presentation of queerness. So it's actually surprisingly, I would say it's actually kind of beginner friendly. So even if you weren't someone who isn't super interested in history normally, I wouldn't say it's it's too bad. <laughs> I mean, I'm also coming to that as the from the perspective of someone who does really enjoy it. So it's hard. Yeah, it's hard to say. The other side of that is because this is a very much a historical book, if you're looking for a comprehensive narrative, it's not there. <laughs> we we don't have enough information to really to really fill in a lot of the gaps and there isn't that much of an attempt to do that, which is nice, but of course if you are coming into it as someone who is maybe a little bit more familiar with fictional works, it might not be as satisfying as you're looking for, but it is also like less than 200 pages. And a lot of those pages just have the photographs covering them. So it's not super long if you do decide that you want to sort of jump into that. But yeah, I learned actually lots of things that I didn't realize I was going to learn while I was reading it. Interesting things on court cases and which is maybe <laughs> maybe an oxymoron for some people interesting in court cases. But some of the things that came out around World War One, and yeah, and just about the community outside Moncton as well. So that's Lennon Cub by Meredith Bat and Dusty Green. And I would say that if you are interested at all in either queer history, social history, or maritime history, I would say give it a shot. I'm so interested in all those things. <laughs> Thank you, Gabriel. Yeah, as you say, I think it's really important to be able to fill in some of the historical record, you know, to remind us that queer people have always been here. But I also always say what I love about Canadian history is the immediacy of it, knowing, you know, like I can go to there. I've been to there. <laughs> and that is really meaningful for me. All right, we're going to move on to Virginia. Thank you, Fiona. Um, so as your introduction said, um, Candid is so much more than what, you know, people so stereotypically think of what Candid is. So I, when I was looking for a book for this episode, I kind of tried to think, well, you know, should I do like a fantasy? Because people may not think, oh, well, Canadian people write fantasy. Of course they do. So I'm trying to figure out what would be the best thing. But I think I went with, because October, November is kind of award season. Of course, in Canada, we're all about the Giller Prize. So I figure I read one of the books from the shortlist this year. And so the one that I chose is We Measure the Earth with Our Bodies by Sering Yangsam Lama. I just want to say ahead of time that give your Venn diagram of reading doesn't usually overlap with mine. This is probably going to be your book because this is definitely not a Virginia story. Um, you know, I, I'm very glad that I read it and it's important, but I think it just, just so that you know, it's not really my type. So it might be yours. It is a multi-generational family story that spans more than 60 years. I can see a Fiona's like eyes, you know, perking up. Um, and this is a story also told from like four different characters' point of view. And it kind of progresses forward and then it sort of jumps back in time to review how we got there. But it's a very clear and distinct way. So it's not like the kind of multi-point of view kind of story that or, or the ones that kind of jump back and forth that is very confusing. It is not like that at all. So pretty, pretty clear. So um, yeah, but it's I think if you enjoy a family story, I think this would be right up your alley. 
This is a story set in the 1960s, at least we begin there, um, and it's about 10 years after China has invaded Tibet. At the beginning, we meet Lamo and Tanki, a pair of sisters, and their family and the people in the village have decided that it is time that they have to leave their home behind. The army is here. They are destroying everything that they hold dear. They are preventing them from practicing just what they normally do, you know, in their daily life. They are told that we have liberated you. We are benefactors. And the people realized they got to go. And so they decided to make the journey to a refugee camp in Nepal. On their way there, unfortunately, their parents died. And so their uncle took care of them from then on. Even though this is supposed to be a camp, a camp meaning that it's a temporary home, of course, for a lot of the people that are there, they have no other ways to go anywhere else. This is it. They have no means. They don't know anybody. They can't go to the next stage, whatever that is. And so the camp became a tent city. The two sisters try their best to stay together, but they have different fates. And one of them, Lamo, being the elder, is expected to stay with the family, to help, to follow sort of what is expected of a girl, to get married, to have kids, to keep that tradition. Whereas Tanki has a chance to go to school, has a chance to get an education, and she wants to leave the camp, and eventually she moves to India to study there. Fast forward to 2012, we meet Doma, Lamo's daughter. She's now living in Toronto with her aunt Tanki, along with a lot of people that are from Tibet. Some of them, as she said, very proudly call this place Little Tibet. But to Tanki, this place is a camp built anew, a copy of a copy of a home, another temporary stop in an endless journey. And even though Tanki has that education, she was a teacher before she came to Canada. She can't find a teaching job, so she's now a cleaner. But that's okay. She's here to support her niece, and she wants the best for her. But Doma can tell that Tanki is not doing very well. She's living with all this trauma, and she doesn't want to burden her niece with all her stories. So she keeps it all to herself, just like her mother, just like her great uncle, who are still living in Nepal. Doma wants to become a scholar in Tibetan studies. Because the Tibetans have been driven out of their home, they no longer have their own country and they will never be allowed to set foot there anymore. She wants to learn more, more than what her family would be willing to talk about. And ironically, she finds that what she knows about Tibet are all from her schooling, from all these white people that are talking about her country, talking about her people as if they're in the past, that they no longer exist. And she finds it really difficult, even though she really wants to enroll herself in this study, she really finds it difficult to listen to them, talk about it so objectively, talk about all the things that happened to her, to her people, to her village, to her country, in such a dispassionate way as if this is just an intellectual study and it's really, really hard for her. One day she was invited to a party. This is a party where all these supposedly experts and all these um, authorities in the field are going to attend. And her professor thought it would be good for her to be there because then she can 
do some networking, and maybe she'll get a chance to further her studies and pursue her dream of becoming that scholar that she always wanted to be. The party is held at a big giant house that belong to a collector, a collector of all sorts of relics and artifacts. And there she discovered that the latest acquisition for this collector is something from Tibet. So she found a way to talk to some of the people that work for the collector to see if she can see this thing that she has collected. And it turns out that this new acquisition is a statue that she knows. Her village called this statue the Ku, the Nameless Saints. And legend has it that this little Ku will appear and disappear to people whenever they are needed. And it has been lost to them for quite many years. And they don't know what happened to it. They don't know whether they lost it when they were moving around or whether they have lost it or it got stolen. They don't know. But now it is in Canada, in this house of some random collector. And so Doma decides to investigate. She needs to find out what happened to this and why this is here. And so that's when we go back in time to learn more about what happened to all the different folks from the village and how this nameless saint ended up in Canada. I think the best thing about the story is about that family bonds, about the family relationship. This is so much of a story about parenthood, about sisterhood. And it's also about how you continue your family traditions and how you pass them on when there are those who are actively trying to destroy them and wipe them out. And how do you, how do you preserve them? How do you preserve all the traditions that you have? As Lamo said in the book, they are not satisfied with just our land alone. They want to possess our minds and they want to destroy everything that they hold dear and they hold sacred. This is a story that really incorporates Tibetan spirituality and show us a different worldview, a different way of looking at life, a different way of living, and how hard it is for them scattered around in all different kinds of countries and not being able to go home. Every story I think about a refugee experience, about someone in exile, they're always unique. Of course, there are universal truths that you identify with, and there's so many really devastating lines in the book that will resonate with anyone who has to abandon your home, who has to leave your home. But every single group has their unique story. And it is so important that we get to see and get to read about them. And I'm really grateful um, because this is a perspective that I have not encountered in the fiction yet. So I'm really, really grateful to have that opportunity to read about it, to learn more about it. But really important for us to remember that a refugee is not all they are. That is not their entire identity. When Tanki meets with people and when she tries to tell them that, oh, yeah, I was a teacher. You know, I read English literature in university. And she said, all these people will raise their eyebrows. They will shake their heads at her as though she was mistaken. Instead, all they want to hear is that she's a refugee. She's someone that needs their help. Just as Shimamanda and Gosi Adichie always say, beware of the danger of that single story. So I 
would highly encourage you to pick up this story, to pick up a story that you may not, also may not have heard as much about, and to meet all the people in this wonderful family story. This is We Measure the Earth with Our Bodies by Serene Yangsam Lama. Thank you so much, Virginia. Yes, absolutely. As you know, that is totally my wheelhouse. And I just I always feel very grateful to people who write about the experience of leaving their home because I do think it's a it's a gift to be able to go and read it um, and have access to that and not not become part of the the problem of always, you know, wanting to get that directly from the person. We we're so lucky to have this opportunity to to have all these different experiences down on paper um and and access them in that way. So thank you, Virginia. And we are gonna change gears a little bit and and go to our existential question. Um leaving it a bit open today. I would love to know something Canadian that you nerd out about. Uh I guess I'll go first. Mine would probably have to be maple and maple flavored things. So, for example, like the maple syrup, the maple coffee, just all these different kinds of things. Um, as is known, I do not like pumpkin spice and some of these other types of popular flavorings, but maple is definitely on the pro list for me. Um, and there's even one particular coffee company in Toronto called Java Works that has a Canadian maple coffee that I will especially order from Toronto just because I want it. I think... I'm probably a little basic. I'm probably a little bit like the original Canadian encyclopedia entry because I'm sort of the travel log, I would say. I I like the I like going to different places in Canada and I like seeing what they're like, especially especially the nature, especially the people. I think I like collecting the little like tidbits or facts about how culture is different because sometimes I I definitely see certain parts of Canadian culture as being sort of just one big mass of likeness with a few I guess like with a few differences and so as I've been able to travel I like to be able to sort of see the differences especially if it's between different groups that maybe often get linked together so spending time in Atlantic Canada I like getting to know the difference between different areas of one of the provinces or where you'd be most likely to find lobster in a parking lot or like any of the sort of practical things that give, I think that give different places just their charm and sets them apart. So yeah, I'm I'm more the travel log. I, I like Canada as a travel destination, I say as a Canadian. Fair enough. I'm going to go even more basic than you, Gabriel. I can talk at length and in great detail about Anne of Green Gables. I... Those books shaped me. They were very important. I can talk so much about Ellen Montgomery's life and how it influenced her books. And I read all of her diaries as a kid. I was obsessed with Anne of Green Gables, although the Emily series is arguably weirder and more interesting and more autobiographical. But yeah, that that I could talk. I, I, I could talk so basic Canadian. Did anybody ever have those? Uh, there was a Canadian equivalent to the American Girl dolls. I had one of the Canadian, I don't remember what they were called. They weren't Canadian girl, but they were pretty much Canadian girl. I had a Canadian girl doll and she uh, played Anne. And so that was my cultural osmosis. I had never read the books, but she played Anne of Green Gables. And in her little diary that it gave me, she talked about playing Anne. And so that's what I needed. She was from Halifax. Her name was Jenny. Well, Fiona gave me an out originally, said that I could talk about Calgary Flames, but I won't. I won't. Um, in fact, I'll talk about something just as red, which is Caesar, the cocktail. 
yes, it is Canadian because you can get Bloody Mary everywhere else, but not a Caesar. And I love a good Caesar. And especially when it is spicy, when it's got like sort of random stuff thrown into it, other than olives. Olives do not belong anywhere. But other than olives, I love a good Canadian original Caesar. So that would be my thing. But you hate vegetables. I don't hate vegetables. What are you talking about? I think Caesars came from Alberta. Cucumbers. <laughs> don't you put cucumbers? I've never had a Caesar before. No. Celery goes in the Caesar. Cucumber. Bacon goes in the Caesar. <laughs> Maple bacon. I think that's what I remember seeing. Anyway, Fiona. These are amazing answers. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of foods and things, but for me, uh, it's going to be heritage moments. And I feel like I've mentioned this before, but I love them. And more than once in my life, I have sat down and watched every heritage moment front to back. <laughs> I love them so much. Like they're both hilarious and occasionally touching. Some of them make me cry. Yep. That's so fair, Fiona. When we were helping my friend study for her citizen exam, we're like, okay, sit down and you need to watch these heritage moments. It has everything that you need. And then and then you like watch some of them and realize how how very little context they actually give. <laughs> like the one on um Ellen Montgomery. Like it's like, oh no, no, oh, you don't know who Anne of Greenwells is? Watch this. And then you're like, that'll probably confuse you more. <laughs> okay. But um, yeah, I like the ambiance. Follow-up is the house hippo. Right. I'm sure we we all love the house hippo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you don't know what we're talking about after this, Google house hippo. Canadian house hippo, I think. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's get back to books. Uh, we are going to hear what Mark has brought for us today. So today, my choice will also go a bit more expansive than that Britannia dictionary, whatever you want to call it, entry, uh, historical inaccurate entry, whatever you want to call it. So I'll be talking about Richard Van Camp's Moccasin Square Gardens. Richard Van Camp is an author from Fort Smith, Northwest Territories. He's part of the Dog Rib group, which is from the Diné. And they traditionally speak the Kriho language. I'm pronouncing that very horribly, but that's the best I can do, unfortunately. His home community, culture, and language feature prominently in many of his novels and stories, including in Moccasin Square Gardens. Interesting to note is that Van Camp Early in his career, also worked as an intern at the CBC and on the TV series North of 60, which he was a script and cultural consultant. So he also has a, some ties to film and television as well as uh, literature. Uh, his writing includes novels, short story collections, poetry, children's picture books, and graphic novels. So he's definitely a very versatile writer and worked in a lot of different mediums, which makes him a rather interesting figure within Indigenous and Canadian literature. This particular book, is a collection of some of his more recent short stories, many of which are set in the Northwestern Territories community of Fort Smith, which, as I just mentioned, is the town that Van Camp grew up in. The name of the collection itself comes from a local dance hall, and the story is called Roaring Rapids Hall, but it's known more colloquially to the characters as Moccasin Square Gardens, a little play on the Madison Square Gardens of New York. Throughout the stories, the themes of family, tradition, and finding connections with them are particularly interesting and show Van Camp's sort of being a member of this community portrays it in a sensitive way that sort of brings out the characters' feelings and emotions towards their community and their history. For example, and was likely my favorite story in the collection, it's Grandpa, 
which we follow the story of one pot-loving band archivist who also spends time helping care for his elderly grandparents. Is Etsy, grandma, and Etsy, grandpa. Again, I'm probably saying those words terribly, but I do appreciate that Bandcamp includes several words from uh, traditional language to introduce people to these words and how they're still used uh, in conversation, even if it's in English. So I found that interesting as well. So particularly endearing in the story is the narrator's time watching the film E.T. with his grandpa and the subsequent bond they shared, their love of the film and its characters. The story is also a reflection on the strained bonds in family due to issues ranging from addictions to worry about carrying on traditional knowledge and language. So for example, the narrator's uncles both struggle with addictions and the narrator's own lack of knowledge of his people's language weigh on his family and what they will do when Etsy, grandpa, who is a traditional hero healer, passes on and who he will pass his knowledge on to as, as a big part of this traditional knowledge of how it's passed on from generation to generation. And it's in their language, but due to a lack of language speakers because of things like colonization and residential schools, many of the younger generations don't know the language or only know very small parts of it. So that's a, a very good story. There's also elements of science fiction in several of the stories, as in Witago Wars 1 and 2. Due to climate change, the ancient beings called Witago, sort of an amalgamation of several beings and in indigenous cultures, including his own, are reawakening from melted ice and going on rampages against the greedy humans who have caused the climate to change so drastically and rapidly. So essentially, because the climate has warmed so rapidly, these Ancient beings who are like encased in the ice are sort of reawakening and wreaking havoc on humans. Receiving forewarning of the coming we to go away from a woman time traveling 10 years in the future, we witness the battle to beat back the awakening we to go in a manner that the protagonist remarks is not all far off from the scenario of the Terminator, where essentially they have a time traveler coming back, giving forewarning of this thing that's going to happen. You got to prevent it from happening, essentially. In the story Aliens, we're introduced to Sherry and Jimmy, childhood acquaintances in Fort Smith. The story takes place not long after alien spacecrafts are discovered hovering above the Earth. No one quite knows why they are there or what the intentions of the star people are. But amidst this uncertainty, we sort of glimpse sort of intimate moments between these former childhood friends who start to become much more. And the story also has some interesting queer aspects to it, as it sort of uh, suggests that well, the character of Jimmy may be either be two-spirit or intersex. So it sort of touches on how these sort of issues play out within more traditional ways of knowledge and their identities. There's also a lot of humor and wordplay that is very conversational and reminiscent of like a more vocal or oral form of storytelling. So for example, in Knock Knock, a story dedicated to the Cree people that Van Camp wrote for, for several people he knows as well as worked with. So a couple of kukum, kukum meaning grandmother in Cree, standing alongside an intersection making knock-knock jokes about their observations of the passing cars, animals, and anything else that catches their eye. And even like several of the stories, including this one, are only like a page or two long, but Van Camp's ability to convey a character's personality or make a joke or two is enough to make this short story satisfying, entertaining, or conveying something meaningful. So if you like stories set in a tight-knit community or enjoy a good laugh with reflections on contemporary Indigenous identity, culture, and community with other elements of humor and science fiction and other things mixed in, then I think you may also like Moccasin Square Gardens by Richard Van Camp. Thank you so much, Mark. And 
I'm sure Kareen will attest as well that like Richard Van Camp is just the most wonderful person in the entire world. What a gem. He is such a great guy. <laughs> Speaking of Kareen, what did you bring for us today? Well, I brought kind of like a traditional uh, Canlit stereotype of the tale of two sisters. The great joke about Canlit is that every story is about two sisters, one beautiful, one plain. And they're living like in a shack in the middle of the prairies. And then there's a knock at the door. There's a handsome man and everything falls apart. But this is not that story. It doesn't even take place in Canada. It is about what happened to two sisters lost in the forest all those years ago on the island of Jeju in Korea. Girls were going missing. And Hwani's father was in charge of tracking down who was kidnapping and murdering these young girls. And Hwani has always looked up to her father, Detective Min, and thought that he could move the earth and the sky. But this was one mystery he could not solve. And perhaps it was because he was a little bit too close to it. Because as suddenly as the murders started, they stopped when one day Hwani and her younger sister, Mewol, disappeared in the forest, only to be found later that night unconscious next to the scene of a gruesome, bloody murder. Immediately, Detective Min took his oldest daughter away from the scene and left the younger daughter in the care of a shaman, and never returned to the island again. For a long time, Hwani tried to remember what had happened in that forest, what horrible thing had occurred. But every time she tried to grasp that memory, it fell out of her fingers like mist. And while she and her father escaped unscathed, not... So for the people of Jeju Island, because years now, Detective Min receives word that 13 young ladies have gone missing from the island again. Haunted by his failure in the previous case, he returns to their home island, leaving Oni alone. And so she waits for news of her father's triumphant uncovering of the murderer, only to be met with silence. Silence that is so uncharacteristic of her stern but loving father who never fails to send word back to his home. And so what is a young girl to do but dress up as a man and make her way down to Jeju Island to solve the case herself? There she meets up with her estranged and angry sister and realizes that the past and the present mystery, all of the answers lie within her. And she must uncover her own past and her own story to solve this mystery and save herself and her family. This is a beguiling mix of historical fiction, of strong, amazing, well-written characters, of a little bit of mystery, a little bit of like 
proto-feminism because of the time that it's written on. Um, and I act chose this author because I feel like she is a Canadian author that just kind of like slowly under the radar and I'm waiting for like the big explosion where everyone just kind of recognizes all the amazing work that she is doing. This is June Her, and this is the book, The Forest of Stolen Girls, which honestly I think has one of the nicest covers of the year or the year that it was written in. This is her second book. The first book was The Silence of Bones, which is equally as excellent. And the third book, which is The Red Palace, which are all amazing YA historical mysteries. Uh, Jane Her is a Korean-Canadian. And I have to give shout outs to her because she worked at Toronto Public Library. So she is a fellow library nerd who I think deserves all the love and all the appreciation in the world. And so for my uh, Canadian pick, I am choosing a YA author. I am choosing a fellow library person. Um, and I am choosing someone that I, I hope gets a lot more recognition as they go on all of their fantastic work. Thank you so much, Green. That sounds totally gripping. Very excited to read that. I am the final pick, and I have also gone with Canadian author who is writing about something in a different country. <laughs> so the book I chose is based on true events. In a Mennonite colony in a remote part of Bolivia, the women of the village are routinely drugged with anesthetics for horses and then raped. The women wake up injured and confused and are initially called liars. Later, when the rapes are too widespread to be ignored, uh, it is reasoned that they are actually being raped by devils and ghosts. Eventually, yes, infuriating, <laughs> eventually, one man is caught and he implicates seven other men in the community. The police are called, which has never ever happened in this Mennonite community, and the men are arrested and taken to the city. The other men sell all of the livestock in order to post bail for these men. Women Talking is the author's imagined story of what happens next. Do not read this book based on that preamble. This is not true crime. And you definitely get a sense of that in reading the reviews from people who are very split. Like, this was amazing. And also like, what the heck was this? Like, yeah. So uh, I'm going to heartily recommend this book to Mark. <laughs> this is definitely... <laughs> This is a Mark and Fiona book, not a Kareen book. So what follows is a philosophical exploration of religion, choice, and ultimately love. Our narrator is one August Epp. It's unfortunate that a book called Women Talking is told by a man, but August is so incredibly endearing that I at least had to forgive him. August was excommunicated from the colony as a boy, presumably due to his parents' sins. He then travels with his parents to England, where he goes through school and is eventually imprisoned for stealing a horse at an anti-war rally. When he comes out of prison, due to the advice of a friendly librarian, a trope I love, he decides to return to the colony in Bolivia, uh, and he's actually forgiven uh, on the condition that he will teach the boys there how to read. When August returns to the Mennonite colony, he meets the woman he once loved so dearly again, Ona. Now, Ona is an old maid, a kind of witch by the community standards, uh, and she suffers from uh, taboo anxiety. And like August, she loves words and facts. 
All of these things make her an outsider and a weirdo in everybody else's opinion. But August is still completely in love with her. Ona is the daughter of Agatha, the sister of Salome, and the aunt of Nietzsche. These are the Friesen women. Along with the Loman women, they are the only ones who have decided that something needs to be done, and it shouldn't be up to the men. They meet in a barn, away from the do-nothing women and their leader, Scarface Jan. <laughs> away from the men, their husbands, and away from the children who were in the care of Nettie, now Marvin, a victim who has refused to speak since she discovered that her rapist was her twin brother. They meet in this old hut to discuss what they will do. Stay and fight, or leave everything they have ever known behind. I love this book. <laughs> uh, I almost didn't read it because of the subject matter. And don't get me wrong, it is very heavy and very upsetting. In particular, the younger children in the community are not free from, from the attacks. So full warning for that is very upsetting. But it's also crammed with beautiful, resilient, clever characters, you know, who are women. And it has an air of hope in an impossible situation. The author, Miriam Taus, uh, was born in Manitoba and is of Mennonite descent. Her most famous books, I think, are All My Puny Stories, Sorry, and A Complicated Kindness. And everything she has ever written is now on my TBR uh, because I just love her writing style so much. And because I can't always distinguish between different like Christian sects like uh, Mennonites and the Amish. Uh, it's actually something that I definitely want to to learn more about. Uh, and we do have, um, you know, some of these those uh, populations in Canada, though this is actually set in Bolivia. So that is Women Talking by Miriam Taus, an awesome uh, Canadian author who, as usual, uh, I'm late to the party in discovering. All right. Thank you, everyone, so much for joining us for I Read Canadian. I hope that you will pick up a Canadian book today, perhaps one of the ones that we have suggested. It's pretty awesome breadth of uh, what is out there. And I think we successfully disproved the basic explanation of what Britannia thinks Canadian literature is. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm -hmm.